Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is the episode for September 2022. And as I have just been discussing with my guest, Sonia Lenigan, immigration lawyer about town, we're dropping the episode numbers. So this would have been episode 105, but I think it's time to move on from episode numbers. We're just going to call this one September 2022. Would you like to say hello, Sonia? Hi, everyone. Right. So we're going to be covering a few different things this month. We've got some asylum human rights stuff to do, um, Strasbourg case on um, really France and um, uh, the situation in Syria for, for French nationals. We've got a lot of material we want to go over about Albania and Albanian asylum claims, um, a judgment on the age assessment process. Um, we'll cover Russian men fleeing conscription, um, something on Windrush, um, some material on dependency under EU law and the education as an essential living need. Um, we also want to talk a bit about um, good character in nationality applications, which we might um, might dwell on a little bit because that's it's quite a technical looking policy tweak, but quite significant potentially. And then finish off talking about um, some material on economic migration, the creative work of ESA and the change to um, employer work checks as well. If you are a lawyer and you need to claim continuing professional development, then um, we have a quiz that we publish as part of a course for this podcast. And you can um, sign up to that at freemovement.org.uk slash training um, and join as a member to take advantage of that. Right. So getting started on the substance of what's happened, I, I, I don't want to spend too long on this one because and the, the kind of headline in a way is that there's nothing to see here for the UK uh, is a, a potentially very significant um, case handed down by Strasbourg about the situation of French nationals in um, Syria who were uh, kind of ISIS brides and had, had, had gone to, to fight on, on behalf of ISIS. And obviously that's something that's attracted a lot of media attention in the UK, particularly sort of personified by the um, Shamima Begum case. So it, it could have been very significant, but in the end, it isn't basically is, is the short story. Because although French the, the, the French government loses this case, they lose it on the basis of Protocol 4 to the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, to which the UK isn't a, a, a signatory. Um, so we haven't ratified um, that that protocol. The fact the fact is it just doesn't uh, apply. And I think the UK probably never was going to, to ratify it anyway. They're certainly not going to now. Um, the French government succeeded on um, the more sort of mainstream Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights on the basis that the French government did not have jurisdiction in the camps in northern Syria. Um, and that's, you know, if if um, if the claimants in the case had won on that, that would have made it very significant here in the UK, but they didn't. So it's not, basically. Um, so it, it's an interesting judgment um, that the French are clearly going to have to think about it carefully. Um, it's it's also there's, there's, before I move on from this completely. There's, there's one other thing to say, <laughs> explain why why it's, uh, it, it's it's not relevant to, to Shamima Begum type cases. The other thing is that you actually still have to be a national of the country concerned in order for you, for, for for you to have, sort of be affected by this. And you know the Shamima Begum case is about denaturalisation essentially. So she's been stripped of her British citizenship. And therefore, uh, even if the UK had signed up to Protocol 4, it still wouldn't apply in her situation. So for all of those different reasons, basically, it it could have been big news, but it's not. So we'll just move on from that. Um, 
the next the next item we want to cover about cover is is sort of, it's a range of different things that we've published on the the website over the last month or so, all to do with Albania. And Sonia, you said you were going to to lead on this one, so I'll hand over to you. Um, yeah, so obviously we're all aware that Albanians have been explicitly targeted over the last couple of months, um, starting with Priti Patel. So we've got a few articles covering the situation. The first one is, why are so many Albanian asylum claims succeeding if the country is so safe and prosperous? Um, so there, Irene has looked at the situations of Albanians who've come to the UK, and she contrasts the government's position which is that they are economic migrants with reality, which is that a high proportion of them are refugees and or have been trafficked here. Um, she also looks at the new trafficking country policy information note, SIPIN. Uh, I think they were published maybe in August after being pulled for a few months. Um, she makes the very important point that refusal letters often do not reflect what is actually in the SIPINs. So it's really, really important that those are read and referred to when making reps. Um, relevant to that is also David Neal's article, New Critique of Home Office Country Information on Albanian Blood Feuds, where he goes through the newly published SIPIN on blood feuds and he sets out its shortcomings and essentially says that it's absolutely possible for claims on that basis to s- still succeed. Uh, the next one is... Government lawyers confirm that the Albanian fast-track removal scheme will not apply to asylum seekers, kind of stating the obvious for anyone who uh, works in asylum law. Um, But it was good to have that confirmation from the government. Um, So the proposal was that essentially that people who arrive here who are Albanian would be fast-tracked. And I think the Daily Mail was saying put on a plane within days back to Albania. Um, Duncan Lewis and Care for Calais wrote to the Home Office challenging that and the um, GLD, Government Lawyer Department, replied saying that that scheme would not apply to asylum seekers. Um, So I guess the concern that I have with that is what happens to the people who are unaware that they are refugees and don't use what may end up being the magic words of I want to claim asylum. Um, so, for example, yesterday, Miklu, I can't remember what that stands for. Um, they tweeted yesterday about Kent County Council saying that it took 80 Albanian young people who arrived this summer and they said that they did not want to claim asylum. And those young people would then go missing, usually within 24 hours. And those are people who have been trafficked, uh, some of them children. So, Many people who do not claim asylum on arrival or who who have been told by their traffickers to say that they don't want to claim asylum, um, if they don't end up being re-trafficked and vanishing, then a lot of them are going to end up detained. Uh, And so the outcome of the proposal is likely to be that we're just going to end up with more people who are claiming asylum at removal stage and going into the NRM at that stage once they're in the Immigration Removal Centre. Uh, This is something the government claims to hate, these last-minute claims, but they keep implementing policies which are just going to increase this problem. Um, In Irene's article, she makes the point that colleagues who work with clients in immigration detention indicate that the majority of male Albanian asylum seekers they see raise indicators of trafficking. Um, There have also been reports, I saw Times Politics tweeted about this a couple of days ago, of temporary Nightingale-style courts being set up to enable the prosecution of people arriving via the channel. 
Jed Pennington wrote about this, I think, yesterday, yesterday about criminalization of people who are arriving after the implementation of the Nationality and Borders Act. It's possible that they intend to target Albanians here, but it's very difficult to see where the resources for a, a scheme like this would actually come from. Um, nor what will happen when many of them turn out to have been trafficked, which is absolutely the inevitable outcome here. I don't know if you've got anything to add to any of that, Colin. <laughs> well, and the, tra- the trafficking is interesting, isn't it? Because we've, we've seen these um, really intemperate and very badly informed attacks on the modern slavery legislation and the trafficking process by Suella Brahman, the Home Secretary. Um, and it, it's become kind of a real bogeyman, it seems, for, for the Home Secretary. And, you know, the fact that it's there to protect really vulnerable migrants um, uh, and yet it's under such uh, sustained attack, really, at a high political level is really quite concerning. Um, but before we move on any any further, I'll, I'll forget. I, I can't claim to be omniscient on this. I, I, I quickly Googled Miklu while you were talking there, and um, it, it's the um, migration and sorry, the Migrant and Refugees Children Legal Unit at Islington Law Centre. So there you go. Um, the um, yeah, it, Albanians are, are an interesting group because they are massively overrepresented in immigration detention. They make up a big proportion of all of those who are removed already and that was even before this returns deal and um they're also and i've just been writing i'm trying to trying to get an article um academic article finished at the moment about um citizenship deprivation and you know they they make up a really significant chunk of the people who are stripped of their british citizenship on the basis of fraud as well and um yeah, it, it, it's quite an interesting issue about Albanians being kind of racialized. Obviously, it's sort of predominantly um, appear white, but nevertheless have become this kind of almost um, racial group in the wider sense of race, not just skin color, um, where they really do seem to be disproportionately targeted by the Home Office, by the police. Um, and it's it, it, it's quite concerning that there is this you know clear. I, I think there's there's clear evidence of discrimination. The fact that they're being kind of singled out by the Home Secretary in this way repeatedly uh, is only going to make that situation worse as well. So um, there's there's quite a lot going on there, and um, it kind of sucks to be Albanian. Frankly, it's it's um, you know it, they are really being they are really being blamed for an awful lot of stuff at the moment. Um, what's your take on the on the modern slavery stuff that we've we've heard? I mean, there's been discussion about reforms that uh, Bravman's going on about murderers, rapists, paedophiles making use of of modern slavery legislation, which has got the um, what was the I I used a, a turn of phrase I was very pleased with um, uh, the sort of odeur de, de chat. Oh, yes. um, I think Bar- Barry actually emailed me who was responsible I, for that. I that, resisted that case. tagging him in on that. He hates it. Uh, he, he actually emailed me and told me off uh, for mentioning the cast. I tried to get away with saying, <laughs> look, it wasn't actually a direct reference. It was just the, the kind of aroma. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, he, that, that, that didn't pass him by. Um, but yeah, I, I, I I, I would guess that it's not literally fabricated. Perhaps there have been, you know, there has been a case like that or something. But to use that as a, a as a basis for then undermining a piece of legislation that is there to protect really vulnerable people does seem really problematic. Yeah, this isn't new. Um, they started this attack on survivors of trafficking in modern slavery around new plan for immigration time. I remember some extremely dodgy statistics um, going online. Uh, so yeah, none of it's new. Obviously, they still haven't 
brought part five of the National Indian Borders Act into force. Again, have they scraped the bottom of the barrel? What's left to do? Um, you know, these the issues with the national referral mechanism is the delay in making decisions, which I think is sitting somewhere around 500 days or something at the moment. And, you know, that's really where, where focus should be put um, in order to try and make things better for people. But obviously that's not going to happen. It can always get worse, can't it? As bad as things are at the moment, it can always get worse. And I think the move from Pretty Patel, who seemed really, you know, bad, to Suella Brahman, who seems even worse, um, does does kind of highlight the issue around that. Um, okay, well let, let's move let's move on. I think the next item we were going to cover was this um, Strasbourg judgment on the age assessment process, because of course you know age disputes are another one of those increasingly politicised um, sort of areas of practice. So you you're going to lead on this, Sonia. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to start by highlighting that both Refugee Council and Greater Manchester Immigration and Asylum Unit have put out reports on age assessments in the UK in the last week or so. So if you're working on these cases, both of those reports are going to be useful. Um, so this case is Darbo and Kamara and Italy, and it was focusing mainly on procedural failings of the Italian system specifically. Um, but, yeah, so the case is mainly useful for reiterating that the age assessment process in the UK needs to comply with international law requirements, even where those requirements have not been directly incorporated into domestic law. And if you click through um, to the actual case um, in the article, then they, they handily list all of the relevant international law and Council of Europe instruments uh, that do apply in this situation. So I would definitely recommend going and having a proper look in there um, if you're working on age assessment cases. So essentially, they just recognise the importance of a proper age assessment process which complies with international law standards, including access to effective remedies. Yeah, quite a lot of the material they they cite is EU law, but it's not just EU law. There's quite a lot, lot more to it as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, and then... And interest as the sort of thing that can lead to very arcane arguments in court, I guess, if you get up to a high level with this sort of stuff. It's kind of the EU law then provides the foundation for the Strasbourg judgment. And it's like, well, without the EU law being applicable here directly, how far can you then rely on the Strasbourg judgment? But probably you can, more or less, um, to cut a potentially long story slightly short. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Sonia. Um so the next item we're going to cover was um, Russian men qualifying as refugees if they flee conscription, because that's, that's been in the news. And one of the things we like to do on, on free movement is try to kind of uh, cover contemporary legal issues with a kind of legal take. And what, what really caught my attention here and, and led to a slightly arguably overlong blog post about this um, was that quite a few countries were basically seeming to say flat out they weren't going to offer asylum to Russians fleeing conscription. And you know, any asylum lawyer, any refugee lawyer would say, well, hang on a second, you can't you can't do that. You might not want them to come to your country, um, but you can't just deny them asylum. Um, and also, of course, they might well not qualify for asylum in the end, but you, you do have to uh, assess them. And there was a kind of, I thought it was interesting that um, you know, you've got the um, Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Estonia, especially by the sounds of things, being being quoted in Reuters and other um, reputable news sources, sort of saying they didn't want 
um, Russians coming to them and they weren't going to give them asylum. And in contrast, you've got Zelensky in Ukraine saying, look, actually, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to claim asylum here, you're very welcome. You know, just throw down your arms. And, um, and as you know, there's an interesting difference of approach there where, um, the Ukrainians are perhaps quite happy for Russian men not to be taking up arms and and joining the army, and the um, attitude of the the Baltic states and some other Eastern European states being uh, arguably somewhat counterproductive. And are they are they really saying Russians should make sure they go and fight in the army because that that doesn't sound like a very good idea? Um, so just a, a quick run through of what the law is on this though. Um, you can potentially qualify for asylum if you are fleeing conscription and um, whether you are fleeing the draft before you've been called up or or um, you're fleeing after you've um, you're deserting after you've been called up um, sometimes it's a question of whether it's prosecution or punishment so the the fact that it's military service might be kind of by the by if for example you are from a particular minority if you are being targeted uh, for worse treatment perhaps because of your race because of your politics because of your religion during your military service or or even by being called up interestingly I, I don't think I've ever seen any international cases on that but it could be an interesting argument and there is evidence that that's happening in Russia you know people are being targeted for conscription because of um, their protected attributes um, there, there are media credible media reports suggest that's happening um, so that could lead to a, a grant of asylum because it, it, it that could amount to being persecuted um, on it on its own. Um, there is also, and you know, I think in the UK we haven't really seen any really major judgments on um, conscientious objection and military service since the landmark case of Septon Bulbul in two thousand and three. So people might not be aware that international law really has moved on since Septon Bulbul. There is now recognised to be an international right of conscientious objection. Um, it's not explicit on the face of any of the major human rights instruments, but it's been read into it um, by the European Court of Human Rights and by the UN Human Rights Committee as well. So there's some really good arguments around that, that things have moved on since the time of Septon Bulbul, basically. Um, but even then, at the time of Septon Bulbul, um, you could potentially claim asylum on the basis of military service if you're refusing to perpetrate war crimes. And there is very credible evidence that the Russians have been perpetrating war crimes in Ukraine. Um, the courts have made it pretty hard, frankly, to actually succeed on this basis because they say you've got to show that you would actually get involved. And how on earth can you do that? You know, If you're fleeing the draft, generally speaking, so especially before you've been called up, then it, it's impossible to know even whether you would be posted to Ukraine. Maybe you'd be posted to one of the other um, sort of borders or, or something instead. Um, if you're fleeing... Um, if you're deserting while you've been in service, then that you might have a sort of stronger factual case there. But the, you know, I think it's perhaps interesting that um, you know many people would think, well, there's obviously a risk of, of war crimes, but actually the, the situation in the courts is that it's quite hard to, to prove. Possibly judges ought to reflect on you know how difficult they've made it for people to, to claim asylum in these situations. Um, and then. Um, yeah, I, th I think that kind of pretty much wraps it up. And I think the, the point is that you know, it is not necessarily impossible to successfully claim asylum on the basis of military service or desertion. Um, there is a kind of um, protected right to conscientious objection, and there's also the um, the risk of war crimes. So don't don't sort of um, assume that those media reports about refusals of asylum or that the Septon Bulbul case sort of precludes success on these grounds.
Right. Okay. Let's move on to the next item. And um, this is a bit closer to home. This is the Windrush compensation scheme. Sonia, you're going to lead on this one. Yeah. So the article is by Nicola Burgess and it's amendments to the Windrush compensation scheme are welcomed, but real reform is still necessary. Uh, Essentially, I think she wrote this article because on the 22nd of August, the Home Office published further amended guidance and rules for the Windrush compensation scheme. And there are three changes that she really wanted to highlight. The first one is that it's now possible to claim for losses if someone became homeless for a reason unrelated to their status, but continued to be homeless due to an inability to demonstrate lawful status. Living costs are now available to close family members who significantly supported someone with rent, utilities, contributions towards food and household essentials, travel, prescription fees. Uh, They need to be able to show that the costs incurred were a direct result of the person being unable to demonstrate their status in the UK. And then also that um, it's been confirmed in the guidance that you can ask the Home Office to commission and fund medical or other expert evidence. Um, she also pointed out that as of Windrush Day this year, which is over three years after the scheme was launched, only 7% of the people impacted have received compensation. Uh, the article also goes on to reiterate the case for reform, as has been made by many others. And uh, those recommendations include taking it away from the Home Office and providing fund- uh, funding for lawyers to do the work under legal aid. If these recommendations continue to be ignored, then problems are obviously going to persist. Have you heard Braverman mention Windrush since she took over as Home Secretary? No, I haven't. No, I don't think I have. It's, I'm, to Patel, I, and when you find yourself saying something like, to be fair to Pretty Patel, you, you have to question. You I know, don't like that comment. No, no, it's not good, is it? It's not good. I, I try, I'm, I'm struggling now to think of an alternative. Anyway, I'll just state, state it as fact. Pretty Patel did talk about Windrush. Um, it was something that she claimed was important to her. We haven't even seen Bravman asserting it's important to her. She hasn't mentioned it as far as I know. Well, I don't know if Patel did it in her first month. So Yeah, t- I suppose that, to be fair, I to mean, be fair. You can, yeah, you can only ignore things for so long. So I, I still refuse to give Pretty Patel the benefit of any sort of doubt whatsoever. No, and and yeah, you know, she she obviously failed to deliver, you know. But at least at least she talked about it. That you know, it's, it's it seemed like there might be some significance attached to it. Um, whereas we haven't okay. seen that with Bravman at all yet. Um, so possibly that's a, another another example of how things can get um, can get even worse than they already were when they were pretty appalling to start with. Um, okay, next item is on dependency under EU law. And again, you were going to lead on this, Sonia. Yes. Sorry, I'm still angry about the Pretty Patel defence. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, and the 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 scheme was has just been a complete disaster, hasn't it? I and mean, yeah. you know, you can't say that Patel did anything um, substantive or useful um, about Windrush. Right. And you know, that yeah. that statistic of seven percent speaks for itself, doesn't it? Um, but she. You know, she did talk about but, it. No, but the thing is, she gave a speech. I think it was July, gosh, twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. Time has no meaning anymore. Um, where she said, you know, all of these things, and then proceeded to do absolutely none of them. So, you know, I don't actually care what she said about Windrush because what has she done? And that's nothing that I can see. Anyway, 
And maybe it's more maybe well maybe it's more honest for Braverman. She doesn't she doesn't mention it and she doesn't do anything. And maybe that's um you know maybe that's that's at least um she's not pretending to do something that, that yeah. she's not, which was which was the case with Patel. I'm not gonna defend either of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move um, on. Let's move okay. on. So dependency under EU law. Uh, education as an essential living need. So the case is Singh and Secretary of State for the Home Department. It was in the Court of Appeal. And essentially, the Court of Appeal agreed that education can be, but is not necessarily always an essential living need. So this is just one of those ones where it says, it needs to be done on a case-by-case basis. All of the relevant factors need to be considered. There may be scenarios where, for example, a sponsor provides support which enables an applicant to afford one essential living need, but then there'll be others where a sponsor is providing support which covers more than one or all of a person's essential living needs. And just, you know, things need to be looked at um, overall to, to make the decision. So it's sort of helpful it's useful to have the confirmation that education is an essential living need, but apart from that, it's just going to have to be done case by case. Yeah, and it's a bit late, isn't it? Because um, there will still be some cases where this kind of thing is is relevant as kind of tale of, of EU law cases, but um, but yeah, it's a, it's a bit late for um, for a lot of people. Um, okay, so moving on, we were going to talk about um, the change to the guidance to home office officials on good character in nationality applications and i i thought this was very interesting and i'm sort of interested to to hear what what you thought about it as well because um what's happened is the i I suppose if we just go back in time a little bit um the home office used to be admirably relaxed about immigration law breaches um, when it came to um, applying the good character test to nationality applications. And that changed following a chief inspector report, I think it's in 2014 or so, it might have been a little bit earlier, um, where John Vine, who was then the, the chief inspector, got really antsy about um, you know immigration breaches not being considered as bad character, essentially. And the Home Office completely changed its policy and basically... Uh, any kind of breach of immigration law, overstaying or anything like that, was um, a, a ban on on naturalisation for I think ten years, and that caused all sorts of problems to a lot of people, basically, um, including refugees. There was supposedly a, a policy of exempting refugees from that, but it wasn't written properly into the guidance for for quite a long time. Not sure if it ever featured. In fact, um, that seems to have been reversed, sort of. Um, so it, it's not, you know, these kind of things tend to be pretty mealy mouth with the Home Office where they, they they do reverse something like this. And I think it flows from, um, the reason I'm not sure is because it, it flows from a change made by the Nationality, Nationality and Borders Act, which was really aimed at EU citizens and comprehensive sickness insurance, I think. Um, and they've updated the policy supposedly in line with that, but it looks to me to be much broader and potentially to allow people who have committed probably you know fairly minor breaches of immigration law so um, periods of overstay and things like that um you know gaps between applications being valid and 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 whatever um potentially not to be excluded from naturalization as british um where certain criteria are met so that is where you are applying for naturalization and you've got ILR which is basically uh, everybody because you've got to have ILR to apply for naturalization um and there are no concerns for example relating to their character that have arisen since the grant of ILR that might cast out on the decision so it looks pretty broad to me 
Um, Sonia, what's what's your take? Are you are you as optimistic as me, or do you think this is a bit more um, minor and technical? Uh, no, I mean I was really quite baffled when I looked at all of this because it just looks like good news, uh, which is very <laughs> useful at the moment. But yeah, that's that is my reading of it. And I mean, you mentioned earlier about how there was an unwritten concession for refugees. You know, these applications are extremely expensive, so you know you're not really going to be spending those thousands of pounds without confirmation in writing that your application will be successful. So this will help with those as well. Um, but yeah, it does just seem like a positive change. Yeah, that's why we're a bit baffled. It doesn't, yeah. you know, we're just not I'm used to the idea of there being positive changes. Yeah. We're very suspicious. But I would be interested to hear, I mean, you know, if um, if people are finding that this this is more constrained than it seems, or if it does seem to be what it what it what it is, then then sort of get in touch because it'd be interesting to and useful to to share that kind of information so that others uh, others can can make their own minds up as well. Um, okay, so we're going to cover a couple of things on economic migration, and I think again you were going to to lead on these, Sonia. Is that right? Yeah, I'm just going to rattle through. They're both fairly brief points to to cover. Uh, The first one is uh, there's a new guidance note on how to apply for a temporary work creative worker visa. So the route isn't new this month, but the article is. And a creative worker is someone who can make a unique contribution to the UK's rich cultural life, for example, as an artist, dancer, musician, entertainer. Technical and support staff can also travel and work under the visa. Uh, interestingly, in-country switching is allowed. Uh, it, the, it, the route doesn't lead to settlement, but the article does lots of useful signposting to other possible options. So if you do have a client who's in that situation, then have a look at that article. And then the other one is uh, employers take note or change for right-to-work checks from the 1st of October 2022. Nicola's done a very thorough summary of right-to-work checks as the current position is, but the main change from the 1st of October is that the ability to carry out document checks remotely, which was brought in when COVID started, that that uh, concession has ended and those document checks now need to be done in person or online when that's the correct route to follow, for example, where people have a biometric residence card. Lots of useful detail in the article. Everyone should read it, especially if you weren't aware that there was a change on the first of October. Yeah, so that's that's definitely a really important one for for people to be aware of and to make sure that employers are aware of as well. Okay, well, I think that wraps things up for um, September 2022. Um, thank you very much again, Sonia, for joining me, and we'll be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>